Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Nasori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Hi John. And our regular guest Dr Misha Jervis, former England women's team psychologist who's currently working with Wickham Wanderers. Misha, hello. Good morning. Um, just before we start, a quick shout out to our partners, Sporting Bounce and the Set Pieces. So Sporting Bounce is the online directory for sports performance. Um, it's managed by, by former guest, Professor Mark Jones, nice guy you can hope to meet. So do check that out. And the Set Pieces is a website which is part of the Guardian's sports network and home um, to some first rate opinion on all things football. Also, if you um, if you haven't left yet left us a review um, and you do like what we're doing, <laughs> please do um, do so on your on your podcast platform of choice. It it really helps. So that's that's that section out of the way, uh, Luke. I think we we're going to kick off a little bit kind of contrary to our usual uh, running order. Yeah. Um, so, Misha, welcome back to the show. Good, good to see you again. Um, I, I was just thinking you know, this morning, I was reading all the news, keeping a close eye on the Winter Olympics. And I couldn't help thinking of the work you've been doing with British gymnastics when looking at all of the fairly, fairly worrying things around the, the Russian skaters, particularly Camilla Valieva. And I just wondered you know, what, what your take on, on that whole situation was. Um, I'm sure you've been following it closely, too. Um, yes, I have. And for me, this is a case of child abuse. It's very straightforward from, from where I'm looking. You know, there are kind of a number of, of familiar patterns and, and they play out in this skating arena. But these are also the patterns that I've seen play out in gymnastics. And ultimately, it's a kind of power over structure of coaching where the athletes have little or no voice. They're very, very young clearly in um, Camilla's case, and they are permanently in a, in a kind of panic state, in a threat state. She's a child, so how she could possibly have consented to take the, the performance-enhancing drugs that she did, I have no idea. I doubt very much she had any knowledge of it and was simply just told, this is what you take. But the abuse really that she received that people are shocked about was as she came off um, the ice. And Unfortunately, I'm not shocked because I think that probably that is what coaching feels like for her day in, day out. I think that's the climate. I think it's normalized behavior from the coaches. And and we had a little glimpse of it. We had a window into it because normally, of course, all of that stuff happens behind closed doors. But, you know, the, the, the challenge here is she is not the one who has to be vilified here. It has to be her coaches and the system. And it's interesting, I haven't heard the word child abuse spoken about, but for me, this is exactly what it is. And Misha, do you think that's going to have repercussions outside of the Winter Olympics and and, and that kind of a sporting arena? I'm just thinking back to, you know, the, the summer, for example, when you had athletes like Ben Stokes, for example, kind of coming out and saying you know, due to, due to mental fatigue, I'm not going to be competing for a number of months. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously had the England footballers um, receiving abuse kind of post Euro 2020. And that seemed to, that seemed to have an effect outside of those kind of particular sports. I just wondered if that, that was something that you felt might happen in this instance. I think those, those stories are so important in shifting the narrative away from us assuming that somehow Every elite athlete is a superhuman with no feelings, who just has to suck it up and get on with it, who is, 
you know, this ridiculous notion of mental toughness um, and, and what that is. And somehow we, we should not expect them to be vulnerable. We should not expect them to be um, experiencing psychological difficulties, which, of course, is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, it's a really, really challenging environment to live in. And so, you, you know, um, and Simone Biles, again, was part of this whole um, basically saying, we've had enough. Let me value me first. Let me say I need to put my mental health, my mental well-being front and center of everything I do. And, and of course, what's ridiculous is we'd expect them to do that with their bodies. No, no one gets criticized for having a cast on their broken leg. We would assume that that would be an appropriate thing to do. So why is it then that we can't understand that mental ill health is about, you know, the brain is not functioning well. It is damaged, if you like. So why can't we understand that it also needs time to heal? And, and Misha, just, just to, as a last point on this, I think one, one of the sort of uncomfortable things I read uh, in relation to this whole story, which I wondered if, if it resonated with some of, the, some of the experience you've had, is it's almost like the coaching set up there and the entourage around kind of Russian skating. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they feel these methods work because they have been successful and they sort of ignore the fact that you know, most of those young skaters that have been successful over the last five or six years have basically retired before they've even hit their 20s. Um, and, and it's almost like the cost of that success isn't really being understood because they're just focused on the fact that the methods get them from A to B. You know, it, it, is that something that tends to happen? Is that why coaches aren't, are reluctant to kind of consider these, the, these kind of issues that you're talking about? I mean, I think you're you're exactly right. You know, there's a there's a history of um, of these methods being successful, yeah. um, and you know, in gymnastics in particular, it got imported around the whole world, which is why it ended up in the UK and and every other country. It has come from. I mean, the gymnastics came from you know um, from Russia, from Romania, from those countries, and little care or thought to actually the well-being of the athlete. And then, you know, if you think about what happens here, we've imported some of those ideals. You know, if you're not winning, you don't get any money. You know, we're not funding you. So um, what price gold medals? So the pursuit of gold medals at any cost also creates conditions whereby um, – no one's interested in, you know, the well-being of the athletes. Let's, let's win a medal. I mean, had all of this stuff not happened for Camilla in the public domain, we wouldn't have known about the relationship between her and her coach. So it's just suddenly little moments shine a light on things and, and, and our understanding shifts. I think it's really, I think it's really, um, really important, important point, actually. Uh, and and moving on from from something that that happens every every two to three years to something that, that also happens every two to three years. Spurs um, winning at, at Manchester City potentially. So um, this this weekend, Tottenham are travelling to to the Etihad. Um, they have won just three times there since since two thousand and eight. And Misha, that that brings us on to our first subject, which is basically what can a team do to psychologically prepare for quote unquote tough away trips I think one thing to add here is that um, I'm sure there'll be a few listeners saying that that's not a particular surprise that Spurs have only won three times since 2008 given given City's uh, resources Um, but actually if you look at the 
the, the, the opposite kind of track record. You look at City's um, record at, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium um, over the last few years. They've actually yet to win or even score a goal in, in four matches. So, you know, it suggests that it isn't always about, about tactics, about the, the technical ability of players, that there is a mental aspect to, to these, these away games um, where teams have a really bad record. Um, yeah, Misha, in your experience, what, what can teams do to kind of prepare for those kind of games? So I think really it's about understanding the difference between walking people into a threat state or enabling people to be in a challenge state. So when you're in a threat state, your thinking, your cognitions change, your ability to believe in yourself drops. You feel like you haven't got as much control over situations. And oftentimes you kind of want to avoid situations rather than walking towards it. Um, A lot more negative emotions show up. and, And sometimes these emotions are are perceived to be unhelpful, but also there are physiological effects. So your cortisol levels increase, your stress hormones, but this also means that there's decreased flow um, of blood to the brain and the muscles, not helpful if you're trying to play a game of football. Um, And also you have decreased blood glucose levels. So being in a threat state creates altered thinking, altered feeling and altered physiological state. So your body changes as well. All of these things come together, which means that people do things differently. So um, they are more likely to avoid situations. They're more likely to, to play safe, to not take risks. They're also more likely to have something called perceptual narrowing, which is whereby um, literally they, they can't see the full picture And that obviously impacts on decision-making. So decision-making is impacted. So the more we go, oh, it's a big game, the more we go, oh, you've never won before, sort of makes people feel like they can't. You know, it's like, oh, you've never done it before. So so you can't, you know, this is is not what you can do. It, It diminishes those feelings of control. So what you need to do is you need to flip it (laughs) um, and try and move players into a challenge state. And a challenge state is where you perceive that you've, you, you can control the situation. Your self-confidence is higher. Cortisol levels go down and sort of physiologically you have more blood flow to your brain and muscles. So the challenge state is about creating, um, and, and, and this is, if you like, the job of the, of, of the manager and all the staff around, actually. If we start going to that place of, oh, we've never done it, Spurs are useless, they can't do it, they can't, it's a big game, then actually you're walking players into a threat state. But if you kind of come around and you change the narrative and you you talk about, well, what can you do? This game, why are we turning it into something different? You know, why are we, why are we changing the narrative? Then I think that you are more likely to, to be able to change the cognitions, the emotions, and, and, and the physiology. Misha, that's really interesting. I, I think one of the things you've touched on there, which I've probably never thought about in all of the, in all of the episodes of this podcast that we've done, is that there probably is quite a good crossover between psychology and tactics there, isn't there? Because if control and feeling like you're in control of what you're doing is a big part of the psychology of preparing for a game, actually it's the role of the coaching staff to kind of break down that game into much smaller elements and 
talk to each player about what it is they're there to do, what their job is, and kind of make that world a little bit smaller and say, look, you can control all of these things. You just need to focus on that and forget about the kind of bigger issue that's going to create this idea of a threat state. So it's almost, you know, coaching and tactics kind of crosses over a bit into, into mentality. Do you think that's right? Uh, yeah, of course. Of course, these things are inextricably linked. And, um, you know, when we kind of walk towards something as a challenge, it's like it, we, we feel very different. It's like, OK, what can I do here? What what does this give me the opportunity to do? And, and also, you know, none of those players are bad players. This notion that somehow they're rubbish players and they're off the players is, is ridiculous. They are highly skilled, highly skilled individuals. So the question we have to ask is how come situations are being created whereby they are not able to show that? Amisha, I spoke last year to uh, another psychologist, Boris Ballant, who um, at the time was working for Dynamo Zagreb. And and he was saying that that in order to prepare the team psychologically for a, a, a tough away trip, he he asked, I asked the team, I presume in conjunction with the manager, to warm up in front of the home fans. Now, they went on to, I think they went on to, to win the game. But I mean, in, in your experience, does that kind of quite kind of high risk move pay off? Or from what you've said, is it more about slightly subtler interventions? So I guess you could say that that's, that's, a, that's an approach move. It's basically kind of... Um, showing bravery going yes and so I can see how it would be quite a powerful move it's kind of like you know you think about the the essence of the hacker it's like I'm facing my enemy I'm not fearful and 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 I can see how how some of that might be powerful in in creating a challenge state rather than a threat state because when you're in a threat state then you know if you if you're really in a threat state then of course those automatic responses the flight or fight or freeze response comes in and actually none of those are great for playing a game of football and, and Amisha in your experience you know you spent a lot of time in and around football uh, players pl- players must be aware of these kind of records that are hanging over them and they must they must know when they've got you know they know when it's a big game right they know when they're playing a difficult match so whatever the coaching staff do to try and kind of you know play that down or, or whatever it might be I assume players are always kind of talking about this kind of thing and are well aware of it well you know again and this is this is why I kind of am very very aware of the language that people use yeah and I try to maybe reframe it you know or maybe I will speak to situations where I know, um, but you've got this, look, you can do this, you did this, ah, oh, you did that in training. It's like all of those things which you are in control of. You know, it, it's not a big game unless you decide in your head it's a big game. It's a game. And, and actually, I guess if you can get the players talking in the canteen about the weekend's match differently, you know, that, that, that could probably be quite powerful for the squad as a whole, can't it? Yeah, it's how you navigate through those experiences and, and, and what they teach you and what you then do with that information. The, the, the real challenge around these um, situations is for players to stay present, to be in the moment, to be playing the game in front of you. If you can do that, then actually uh, those threat states are less likely to show up. Misha, talking about uh, threat states, that kind of segues quite nicely into, into our second topic for today's show. 
we're interested in exploring the impact of kind of consistent public displays of negativity from managers and, and the effect that that has on players. So, I mean, just to bring in a, a recent example of this, and there are many, um, Brendan Rodgers was quite scathing about his players after Leicester's recent defeat in the FA Cup uh, at Nottingham Forest from the division below them. I think he labelled his players as embarrassing and lacking hunger. Um, and I think he even went as far as to say some of his squad think they're top players, but they're a long way off it, which wasn't exactly pulling any punches. How, how do public displays of negativity from the manager kind of affect the squad? Um, can they be positive or you know, do individual players not always react the same? Well, just segue back to what I've just been talking about in terms of threat state. Yep. And then think about that language in terms of diminishing perceptions of control, limiting self-efficacy, self-belief, and then ask yourself how, how that might play out. I, I think um, what Brendan Rogers was saying is that he was embarrassed. So he was feeling, he was feeling these things as well. Um, and, and, and that's the other thing we have to remember is that the managers are in a difficult situation, you know, because the perception is, is that it's their fault what happens on the pitch, yet they're not on the pitch. So they can't actually directly impact the quality of that pass or whether that shot is on target or not. And yet they're responsible for what happens. So it's a very difficult place for managers to be. And, you know, clearly... I, I think in those moments, it's more about them. It's about how they're navigating through what they think is going on and, and possibly protecting themselves. However, inadvertently, you know, the, they are going to be damaging their players um, because if you think someone thinks you're rubbish, how does that make you feel? Makes you feel less than, makes you feel diminished, you know, are you going to be then the person that comes out and goes, you know, ah, well, I've the manager thinks I'm rubbish, but I believe in myself. Mm, maybe, maybe not. So I, I think I think the job of managers is, you know, and I, I spoke about it earlier. It's like power over, which is crushing, humiliating, belittling or power under where the job of the coach, the job of the manager is to give power to the players so that they can be elevated, so that they can flourish, so that they can do more then. That's really interesting, Lisa. I think, you know, seeing a number of top managers have that kind of internal battle to some extent between kind of self-preservation and mm-hmm. the, the the need or desire to, to motivate a squad for the kind of unconventional means. I think Jason Mourinho is probably the kind of example that stands out over the last, certainly the last kind of couple of years. Um but just 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 on kind of what you said, made me think a, a little bit about the the interview we we had with with Gareth Ainsworth and, and Richard mm-hmm. Dobson at the beginning of the season, and that ability to kind of hand over power to to players. I thought they crystallised really well when they taught um, when they talked about the the kind of generals that they've assembled in the in the dressing room. In your experience, is that kind of an effective way of? of kind of empowering empowering players because it seems initially like quite a traditional concept but actually I think you know that, that Richard and, and Gareth have kind of um evolved that to, to some extent with your I know with your support <laughs> yeah I mean why shouldn't everybody have a voice why why are we so you know why are managers so fearful to hear from players I, I don't understand that 
So, you know, the, the, the mantra, and, and I speak about it a lot, and Gareth does, and um, Richard Dobson does, is you're important, you the person, you're important. And therefore, I need to hear you. I need to understand what it feels like. Because their lived experiences, if I'm not acknowledging or understanding their lived experiences, then I might not be able to offer the best solution. Because me standing on the side of the pitch is, is very different from me being actually on the part playing. And, and again, it's like, why, why do we have to diminish people? The, these, are, these are grown individuals. They're smart people. They have things of value to offer us. And Mitch, I suppose that raises an interesting point as well. And it comes back to what you said about, I like that concept of power over or power under. That, that must yeah. be quite a nice dichotomy for, for managers to think about. It's probably sometimes right to use one, one or the other. I've always thought when it comes to what managers say in press I'm not sure it's any, any, any good time to do power, un- uh, yeah, power yeah, under, yeah. if yeah, I'm yeah. honest. So, yeah, no, <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> So, okay, fair enough. I mean, the point I was actually going to make was I've always thought that what managers say in press conferences is something that's heavily inflated for the purposes of the media who, who kind of are desperate to look for a narrative so that they've got some copy to, to run for the next seven days. It, it, would most managers probably say something like, actually, look, don't listen to anything I say to the press. Actually, it's more important what we're saying to each other uh, as a group and, and, and at the training ground and, and actually all of, that, all of that kind of stuff that I'm, I have to contractually do when I need to speak to Sky Sports is, is largely irrelevant to what, what we're doing as a group and it's about how we talk to each other yeah uh, 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 and that's exactly right I mean there there is a lot of game playing but again it depends on what the relationship is between the manager and the players if there is dialogue you know if if the players do have a voice if they are trusted if they trust the 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 people who are who are working with them the manager then of course they're you know they're they're smart as I said they're smart people they understand that there's a game um and 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 we don't know because if Brendan Rogers goes, oh, listen, listen, people, you know, I'm going to have to say some stuff about this. It's not really what what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling about you, but it's going to look like this. Then then it's then it's OK. Then then we have a then we have a shared understanding. And then um, then my my worry about the manager thinking I'm awful, I'm terrible is immediately taken away. Um, so, you know, it's. It's it's how that how that agreement is is expressed um, and and shared. I think that makes the difference. I suppose there's a there's a contract of trust there as well, isn't there? In terms of you know, if you're being straightforward with me as to why you're doing something, then I understand it, and I'm not going to worry about it. It, it kind of works like that, doesn't it? Yeah. If they if they share that. Yeah. But if they don't, then everyone's in a state of confusion. Going, why is he saying that? And and you know, and not all managers talk to their players. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it kind of seems baffling that 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 still happens, <laughs> doesn't it? Because it we blows, you know, blows we talk, my mind, John. Every time yeah, I read that, that's yeah. what we talk consistently on the show about about that kind of about that kind of theme. And I think I think it was Danny Donnelly last time you were on me. She was mm. saying that you know he's worked he worked with a manager um, at one of one of his clubs. You know, he's worked at. At top clubs like Everton and, and Villa, who, who refuse to speak to injured players, um, yeah. and you just think, given where we are now in terms of understanding psychologically how players operate, um, that 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 kind of thing would, at the very least, be fading out. But 
yeah, it doesn't seem to be anyway. Well, I think, you know, you, we also have to re- recognize that they are a product of their environment. So mm. they will have been playing 20 years ago, you know, maybe longer. And what was the culture like then? So what they do is they replicate it and they go, oh, yeah, I know what being a manager looks like. It looks like this. And, and so sometimes they don't, they don't um, understand that actually mm, maybe that wasn't so helpful for you. And they just, they just replicate it. The, the managers that are more emotionally aware, emotionally intelligent, um, that give people a voice, that listen to people, um, they're, not, they're not working in that way, I don't think. And, and Misha, that really goes back to, funnily enough, what we were saying about the the, the coaching methods that came in in gymnastics and skating mm. and things, where mm. I guess if you've imported a way of doing things which has had success in the past, you're less open to the idea that there's a different way of doing it. But I mean, I mean, it does still seem crazy to me that we constantly talk about the power of communication. You know, whenever we talk about anything to do with psychology, it's it's usually rooted in the power of communication. Yeah. To just to just put that to one side and say I'm not I'm not, not going to harness that just seems naive. I think is what I would say. But you have to be. You know, the other thing is we have to acknowledge managers' vulnerability. Yeah. Now I'm not sure that we ever do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go yes, but really, how and when does that happen? Um, and, and understand that that sometimes um, they are feeling defensive and they are feeling uncertain and they are in a threat state. You know, they're they're in this place where they feel like oh, their decisions are that they're not sure of themselves. They often isolate themselves as well. You know, and and they they step away from everyone else and they fear that they can't trust anyone. You know, this notion of mistrust. I've seen it over and over. And, and what happens then is that the gap between players and manager gets bigger and bigger. And then players can't understand the manager and manager can't understand the players. So, you know, things, things fall apart fairly, fairly quickly. And, and I think if, if, if listeners are interested in kind of, I think you're right, Misha, like that isn't something that gets, gets enough uh, consideration. But you know, I'm sure John is itching to say what I'm about to say. We, we had a journalist called Mike Calvin on the show who wrote a fantastic book. Um, is it called Living Under, a Vol- Under the Volcano, John? On, on the volcano. Yeah. Living on the volcano. And it's essentially a, a book interviewing several different managers, Misha, and just talking to them about their individual experiences of what it's like. And some mm. of their stories are, are utterly harrowing, um, you know, to, to, be, to, be, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I would really recommend uh, listeners pick that up because it, it is one of the few uh, texts out there that actually do kind of approach that subject. Yeah, we have, again, we have, we, in the same way that we have created this notion of what we think athlete looks like, yeah. We have also replicated for what we think manager looks like. Um, and and, and we, we don't want them to deviate from that. So, you, you know, and the media is not great at helping them, <laughs> you know. So notions of, ah, oh, he's not passionate enough. <laughs> well, maybe he's just calmly focusing on what's happening in front of him. I feel like journalists want every football manager to just be Alex Ferguson, and that, that's basically part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, not helpful. Yeah. Not helpful. Um, and again, you know, it's like, you know, Alex Ferguson um, is not God. And, and, and that's sometimes those things where managers within the structure are perceived to be, you, you can't say anything against them. But actually, they're humans. They're going to make mistakes. It's like, why can't we kind of go, maybe we should do this differently? 
Um, but if but if somebody challenges that and the manager is vulnerable and not sure about themselves, then their reaction might be get rid of that person. Don't want to hear about that. So there's a lot of complexity here. I think, yeah, talking about complexity, I think that leads us nicely on to, to our third topic of, of this week's episode, actually. So Christian Eriksen played mm. his first game um, since his cardiac arrest last June in, um, in a friendly against um, a South End United 11. Um, it was this Monday that, that he, he played, so the 14th of February. So fantastic, first of all, to see him back out on the pitch um, in, a, in a match situation. That is, that is great news. Um, speaking as... Um, as a Spurs Spurs fan, um, I mean, he was you know among the among the best players that I've seen in kind of thirty years of, of supporting Spurs. Um, but clearly, kind of beyond what he did on the pitch as well, just as a human being, it's fantastic to see that you know he's he's in a position where he's able to play football again. Mm-hmm. Um, Misha, he sort of an interview with the BBC about not having any scared feelings about returning to playing now. Clearly, again, he's in an interview where um, he would have been media trained um, and that, that there will be a kind of narrative that the club and he want, want to follow. But I, I just wondered from your experience, you know, how, how true that could be um, from someone that's been through that experience, you know, returning to, to, to a playing environment. Well, interestingly, I just, I just posted, a, a, we, we've just finished a bit of research asking people about their um, experiences of um, generally long-term injury and, and returning. And um, 97% of them experience fear of re-injury. So that's quite high. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and the thing is this, is that what happens is that the, the, the purpose of our mind is to protect us. You know, its job is to go, watch out, danger, alert, alarm, be careful. That, that's its job. And when we are putting ourselves in situation where there was a lot of danger, you know, our, our minds are going to be talking to us because that's their job. So how you navigate through those thoughts and feelings that are going to show up is, is really important. And, um, and it might be that he has navigated through them and actually he has understood that they're going to show up and is able to kind of let those thoughts go and not engage in them. But, but generally what happens is that there will be little bits of avoidant behavior, you know, so maybe he's starting to do those kind of every, every step forward is 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 a move towards where he get he wants to get to. So it's not like he had the heart attack, everything went wrong, and then you know, and then he's suddenly playing a game. He has taken baby steps, if you like, and and stuff will show up in each of those baby steps that he has to navigate through. And clearly, he's feeling like he has done enough of that navigation to be able to focus on the game, to come back into the now. And, and to see what's what's actually going to be happening because he experienced trauma. You know, let, let's not underestimate this. It was trauma. And when we've experienced trauma, our mind wants to protect us from experiencing that again. I, I think there's something really interesting there that, that, that struck me about the whole situation. You know, he, he has been coming back from something very traumatic. You, you're absolutely right to say he's been taking baby steps. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about he's been very 
intelligent, in my opinion, in terms of how he's made his decision about his route back into football. And what I mean by that is picking Brentford, picking Thomas Frank, who's somebody he's worked with in the past, a fellow Dane, somebody he knows well. It's very evident that he's kind of putting people that he trusts around him. Mm-hmm. Um, that must be really, really important so that, you know, I imagine part of that conversation about joining Brentford was, you know, I've picked you guys for a reason. I want to be able to kind of tell you where I am and be honest about it and, and not not be working with a group of strangers that, that maybe I don't have that level of safety and security with. Do you think that's uh, that, that's you know, probably quite important to, to helping him kind of get back to where he wants to be? I think it's hugely important, hugely important. And, and, and it's hugely important, you know, for any player that's returning from, from injury. Um, we know that if you can be open and honest and, and that you're not, you're not going to be judged as being less than when you own it, if that makes sense. Then actually you're able to, to, to move forward and, and to move through these, these difficult things. So if he's feeling that he, he has a, a trust relationship, then that's going to be so, so important because he has to be able to say, yeah, not feeling it today. <laughs> and, and no one's going to judge him for that, you know, and, and, and one would like to think that no fans would judge him and no media would judge him <laughs> if this happens. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because understand the trauma, understand that recovery from trauma sometimes has to take a sideways step. It looks like you're going forward, you're going forward. And then sometimes suddenly you might have to take a sideward, sideward step and that's fine and that's okay. And we, we understand that that has to happen, and then and then we move again. Misha, how how important is it that that people, not just within the coaching team, but around the club, are uh, aware of the, the signs of anxiety, for example? So that, and we're not just talking about Ericsson here. I think probably a broader point. So that players that might be suffering from from anxiety or, or depression to, to use another example that people can pick up on those those signs early yeah i mean without a shadow of a doubt mental health literacy is important and and particularly around injury so again i'm kind of speaking about this this bit of research that we just did so um 81 of people said that they experienced some kind of depression 77% said that they had anxiety, and this might shock you, but 53% of them said that at some point during their rehabilitation and their recovery, suicidal ideation showed up. So, you know, for me, it is really, really important that injured players have psychological support and that it's just embedded and it's just normalized and it's just part of what rehab looks like. And that you know, people like myself can work with physios or work with the SNC coach. I, I was doing um, a session the other day with a player who's been out for a long time and is now coming back uh, from an ACL. And uh, he was working with the kind of um, the conditioning, the SNC coach doing bits and pieces, small drills. And I was on the pitch with him and I was just watching and there was a movement and I'm watching and I'm going, yeah, that he's hesitant here. There's just a little bit of muscle guarding going on. And so he was able to just stop in that moment and just understand what was happening. And then we kind of reset it. And then we went again. But, you know, that, that was just a little moment of just hesitancy, uncertainty. And, and it shows in his body and his movement patterns changed. 
So, you know, again, that's just an example of how if you don't know that stuff, if you're not aware of it, you're going to not necessarily understand exactly what is happening in front of you. That's interesting, Mitch, because I think we, we've spoken to you about movement patterns and, and guard, muscle guarding and things like that in the past. And I guess mm-hmm. there's a bit of me that thinks the specific trauma that Christian Eriksen had, you know, it not being an impact injury, it not being something sure. like an ACL. Sure. I guess it's I guess it's unique in that sense. But I guess the the, the overarching point about fear of re-injury you know, he's almost even got more uncertainty because he doesn't know, you know, his heart might decide to have an issue at any point. So he still has that kind of anxiety around that. So, so I think, I think much of the psychology is probably very similar. The one thing I did think about um, the particular uh, uniqueness of a, of a cardiac arrest though, is that lots of players suffer from ACLs and they're harrowing injuries, but I guess it's something, you know, they, they kind of come through it and it's, it's sort of, I guess, forgotten about amongst fans and media to a certain extent. One of the issues I think Ericsson might have is that, He's now the player that came back to play from a cardiac arrest, and that's constantly going to be the narrative around him. And, yeah, yeah. and, and is there an element of you know, that? That must be quite difficult if you're trying to kind of deal with it psychologically and trying to move on from it and get yourself back, you know, back to where you where you were, and constantly having to kind of you know everybody's reminding you you've got this anxiety. That that must be a, a unique well, challenge. Well, well, what could be happening is that you're re-traumatizing him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, hello, let's just walk him into PTSD here. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. But, but you know we're laughing but it's but it's it's serious very it's serious very serious yeah. and and that's the thing about trauma is that you don't know what those triggers are yeah you know you don't know for him he doesn't know what those triggers may or may not be you know playing an under 23s game with two men and a dog watching is <laughs> is very very different from being in that stadium from that that scenario and, 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 and as I said, trauma, trauma gets triggered in all sorts of different ways, not all of it predictable. But if you can imagine that you're trying to move forward and someone's keep, keep saying to you, oh, but you had trauma. Oh, but you had trauma. Oh, it was difficult. Oh, it was awful. Then you're going to be thinking, oh, my goodness me. Yes, I did. Yes, it was terrible. You know, we're not helping him, by the way, um, to, to actually come through that. And and I hope, I, I hope that he has had some psychological support around the trauma and that he's talked about it and, and um, that he's able to, you, you know, he's done that kind of psychological healing around it, which will make, it, make him more, um, more able to navigate through the obvious challenges that he's going to face and he hasn't yet faced. That's a really interesting point, Misha. We had David Beast on the show. Um, a, a well, we, we recorded an interview a few a few months ago now, and I thought it was really interesting that when he came back from from his ultimately kind of career ending injury, um, when he so when he came back, when he started, when he kind of spoke to kind of when he, when he spoke to fellow players, he found it you know very difficult um, to talk about you know to talk about his injury and, and his feelings with with players, in fact, to the point where he kind of took himself away from the training ground because he felt it was having such an impact on mm-hmm. on the people around him. Um, in contrast, actually, you know, from, from interviews that, that that I've read with with Ericsson, he has talked very openly with his Danish teammates about this mm-hmm. um, on a number of occasions. And I just wondered if that was kind of maybe symbolic of some, you know, some progress in in, in that respect, Misha. Um, you know, the beast injury was kind of nine, you know, nineteen ninety five. You know, um, we're well, almost thirty years on. You know, we potentially were in a slightly better situation. 
Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, if you've got a manager who never talks to you when you're injured, that's not going to help much. <laughs> um, but, you know, what Ericsson is doing, talking to his teammates is important because the other thing is they experienced trauma as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because they watched it. And that is as triggering for PTSD as, you know, as Ericsson is having the heart attack, he's, he, he's not really present anymore. The people around him... Um, his captain who came to his aid, he was really present and, uh, and watching, watching it all unfold. So I, I'm glad that they're talking about it because, because the other players' feelings are, are as important. You know, um, Ericsson has the kind of physiological risk, if you like, but psychologically um, the trauma was, was experienced by a lot of people. I mean, strangely enough, Misha, John and I had tickets to that match, um, and we, mm. we couldn't we couldn't make it. And just you know, just, even when we talk about it, John, we're sometimes like almost slightly traumatized by the fact yeah. that we were almost there, mm. and we weren't even fans in the stadium who probably had it ten times worse, and we weren't the players who play with him who had it a thousand times worse, and yeah. we weren't him. So yeah. if we're you know, as two people that almost attended the match <laughs> are almost talking about the trauma we feel about it, that just gives you some indication of of, of what a serious event it, it was. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely and we have to acknowledge that we have to acknowledge that and for some people they will have experienced it in a very different way from other people um for some people it might have been triggering for something for other people it, it nothing you know nothing untoward has has subsequently happened to them but but let's not be under any illusion that was trauma Misha, thanks um, so much for, for for your time um, today. It's been a been a really really enlightening discussion, and um, I think we just you know on this show all the best to, to Christian Eriksen as well on his on Absolutely. his return from from, from injury. Um, really hoping that yeah that that you know he um, you know if he, even if he doesn't get back to to kind of past levels of performance that he kind of finds um, yeah some kind of finds his place on, on the pitch again but he does it on his terms exactly you know, he, he yep. chooses he chooses he's choosing his story he's choosing what he wants to do and that he's comfortable with those choices i think that's the most important thing so that's it for for this week's um episode of the football psychology show we'll be back in um a couple of weeks um so stay tuned for for that episode but and, until then um see you later <laughs>